You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2019. Today's episode is titled, Autonomy is Not a Virtue. Strategic planning is a process of discerning God's will. Managers must be interdependent to be able to discern God's will. Such managers will progressively display Christ-like character and be the clearest strategic thinkers and consequently the best organizational leaders because they can discern and align with God's will. Workers should follow the lead of those who have authority over them. They must develop their skill and ability under the tutelage of wise, godly leaders and managers. An enemy of this process is autonomy, the presumption of independence and self-commissioning. When a person acts independently, there is no humility, submission, or teachability. Such people will be vulnerable to self-deception and poor workplace performance. Executional excellence is a byproduct of godly leadership and godly workers who are humble, submitted, and teachable. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Independence. Well, this morning we want to talk about Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And the focal point here is to understand more fully uh, what the Apostle Paul has to say about his singular calling and how his singular calling is not an independent call as one might presume. Paul's words in the first chapter of Galatians can be construed as statements of independence and a lack of submission to authority. Paul speaks as one who had, has direct access to God without a human intermediary which some would would call or some would use as a model to support independence as a Christian virtue. Uh, This I do not believe is a proper way to understand the text. Now, I I would point out, I was going to read some of those texts for you as examples. I'm just going to read one or two here because they can be very lengthy here. When Paul starts out, he says an apostle. He is an apostle not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he's, you know, excluding basically making the point right up front, not from man or through man. Now that's a pretty strong statement, and it almost sounds like Paul is very, very independent. Paul is functioning outside of relationship with others, and again, that's not Paul. That's not the way Paul functions. So these statements seem to reflect independence and to support the idea of a direct relationship with God that requires no human mediation or confirmation. To understand these state comments correctly, it's helpful to understand the context in which they were made. The first two chapters of Paul's epistle to the Galatians reveal an intense battle for the purity and clarity of the gospel during the formative stages of the church. There was enormous pressure to syncretize Christianity with Judaism. After all, the Jewish people were God's chosen ethnic group, a special people who enjoyed a special relationship with God. Certainly there would be no new revelation about righteousness before God apart from Judaism. I mean, Jesus was indeed a Jew. It's only made sense that one had to become a Jew by being circumcised and or practicing the Mosaic law to enjoy the benefits of righteousness that comes through Christ. At the time of the first church council in Acts, recorded in Acts 15, this was the pedestrian thinking, which led to some confusion about the gospel is evidenced by the gospel that emerged from the council, namely a gospel of grace through Christ plus a few works. See Acts chapter 15 verses 19 and 20. Paul's singular gospel, his singular call was to clarify this confused gospel 
with a clear, cogent, compelling message of the singular gospel of salvation by grace through Christ alone. To effect this, Paul was given a singular revelation of Christ, a direct encounter with Christ without human mediation, and from that came the singular, unique call. It appears that the singular gospel required a singular call based on a singular revelation. Immediately after his conversion to Christianity, Paul seemed concerned about the confusion regarding the gospel displayed by the church. Consequently, Paul did not seek confirmation or guidance from senior church leaders until three years after his conversion. Then he went up to Jerusalem for 15 days to see Peter, but his private discussions with Peter are not revealed in Scripture. However, 14 years later, Paul returned to Jerusalem to visit the senior leaders. This time, he wanted to be commissioned. He sought confirmation of his calling to the Gentiles and confirmation of his singular gospel of grace through Christ alone. So the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2 provide a glimpse of Paul's subsequent visit to Jerusalem and his interaction with the singular apostles, that is the original apostles, regarding his gospel. Was the gospel salvation by grace plus some works? Or was it by grace alone? Notwithstanding resistance, the senior church leaders confirmed Paul's gospel, a message of grace through Christ alone. It was therefore not necessary to be circumcised to become a Jew and or obey the law of Moses to become a Christian. Well, let's take a look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll read it, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the details here. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So you see, Paul did not go alone. He had companions, and those companions were very important to him. Reading on, I went up because of a revelation. He had specific guidance from the Lord and set before them, through, though privately before those who seemed influential. This is apparently a reference to Peter, James, and John, which you'll see later in the text. The gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Interesting that he wants to be sure he does not run his race in vain. Referring to his call in life. He wants to fulfill the call that God has ordained for him to fulfill. But even Titus who was with me was not forced or coerced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers sacredly brought in who slipped in to spy out freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to be circumcised worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. So Paul is very clearly seeing himself as an apostle, somewhat on par with the originals, although he recognized and called himself the least of all apostles in 1 Corinthians 15 because he had persecuted the church. Reading on, and when James and Cephas and John, that's James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me 
they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. That's kind of the uh, the the way you we we today we lay hands on people to ordain them. Well, this apparently was a way of doing that back then as the right hand of fellowship. That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You see, Paul, after three years, he went to Jerusalem for the first time. And he went there to visit with Peter, to connect with Peter, to again illustrate to us that Paul was not an independent person as one might conclude from looking at chapter 1. After he visited with Peter, he went up to Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia, where he abided for some 14 years and then came back. Finally, he was convicted that he needed to connect with the leadership of the church to confirm his singular gospel and singular calling. Remember, the idea of a singularity is something unique, something that's not necessarily repeatable. The giving of the singular gospel was done in a singular way to the Apostle Paul. He had a singular calling based on a singular revelation. Most of us come to Christ by human mediation. Paul did not. He came to Christ by direct intervention by Christ. That's what makes his, his revelation of Christ singular and his calling singular. And, because, and that was because he had a singular gospel message. It seemed that, that there was a struggle in the first century to really understand the gospel correctly. And so Christ, in his grace and favor, made sure that we had one person who was very clear on the gospel while others were wrestling with it. You see, prior to Paul's visit, some Jewish people came to Antioch, which was his base of operation, and they taught that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, that stirred up dissension and debate in Antioch, which prompted Paul and Barnabas, in part, to go down to Jerusalem. Now, it could be that Paul and Barnabas were also sent, because you look in Acts 15, uh, where they have a church council, Paul and Barnabas apparently were there, and this might be, this reference in Galatians 2 might be a reference to that, and we know that they were sent, you know, to be part of that council. And here, the text says that Paul functioned out of revelation, specific revelation. Remember, there's three kinds of revelation, general revelation, special revelation, and specific revelation, which I'll talk more about that a little later. But specific revelation is specific guidance from God to a certain person, a specific person, about a specific situation at a specific time. So it's not canonical. It's not revelation that would be applied in any other context. It's specific. So Paul, Paul says he had revelation, presumably specific revelation, and maybe that specific revelation came through this commissioning that he got from the leadership of the church in Antioch to actually go to Jerusalem and encounter the apostles over this issue of exactly what is the nature of the gospel. Paul's traveling companions were Barnabas and Titus. Paul apparently met Barnabas during his first trip to Jerusalem after his conversion to Christianity, according to Acts chapter 9. Barnabas befriended him and became his companion in the work of the gospel. Titus was a, Jew, a Gentile convert to Christianity who had not given in to the confused gospel of the Judaizers of the time. Paul's purpose in visiting Jerusalem was apparently to meet privately with the church leaders to seek their blessings 
and confirm the gospel message of grace through Christ alone. Though he was confused, he was, but he was strongly, though he was not confused, he was strongly persuaded of the veracity of the singular gospel. Paul demonstrated the importance of being under authority, in part to be sure that he was not deceived or off course on either his calling and or his message. Everyone has a race to run, and no one can define his or her race. It is sovereignly defined. Our responsibility is to discern it and run it. Hebrews chapter 12, one, verse, verses 1 and 2 are such a profound text on this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, that is, every block, every sin which clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Look into Jesus, the author, or founder, and perfecter of our faith. You see, this is a race. Running our race requires Christ at the center of our life. It requires us freeing ourselves from blocks. It requires us growing and maturing in Christ. It requires us living our lives based on Christ. This is Christianity. This is not optional Christianity. This is Christianity. Anyone who does not live this way is not bearing the fruit and cannot bear the fruit of being a Christian, and there's no biblical assurance that they are. The only biblical assurance is that when we are bearing fruit that is consistent with Christ, then we have some reason to believe that a person is saved. So this is a strong text. It's a strong imagery here of running the race. You know, the Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews intimates that just as the sponsor of a sporting event, this is the race sets up the race of the contestants, so also God sets up our race in the meta-narrative and assigns each one of us a role to play in the history of God. It's an individual role in a historical context, in also in the context of community. Now going on to verses 3 through 5, but even Titus, when he was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, nor was he, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in despite our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Titus was a Greek, not a Jew. In another epistle, Paul referred to him as his true son, implying true spiritual son. Titus's presence with Paul on this journey was not an accident. You see, God doesn't do accidents. God has intended purpose for everything. The issue was to clarify and confirm the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. Titus stood strong based on the Pauline gospel and refused to compromise. The early church was clearly tainted by sin as evidenced by the surreptitious attempt to coerce Titus into being circumcised. Professing Christians who do not hold to the Pauline gospel were, the discussion, were in the discussions with Paul and his companions. Who invited them in is, in is not clear, but it is, was probably with someone within leadership. And at least initially, the motive of the false brothers may not have been clear, but soon it became very clear. The presence of the false brothers was intentional and meant to dis, be disruptive to Paul's objective of clarifying and confirming the true gospel. Was a person saved by grace alone or by grace plus something? For these false brothers, the answer was the latter. Salvation was by the grace of Christ plus being circumcised to become a Jew and or obeying the Mosaic law. 
Either form of this is contrary to Paul's singular gospel of the grace of Christ. Interestingly, if indeed the context of this interaction was the first church council, there may have been people in, in attendance who were not genuine Christians or were able to project false doctrine in this church council. Now, this is, seems to be a common pattern in church history. In other words, this happens in future church councils after this initial one. The church comes together to settle doctrinal issues in the form of church councils, and those who advocate false doctrines many times have a voice in the conversation. Consequently, the nature of the Christian church seems to encompass false brothers. False brothers are those who don't really know Christ but pretend they do, and they therefore have and project false doctrines. Though many times they do not seem to realize this reality and tacitly assume that the church is or should be perfect. That is, many people don't get this. They don't, they're surprised that there might be false brothers in the church. And then they're offended when they discover that the church is not perfect. The false brothers were spying out the freedom in Christ, which means freedom from works, freedoms from leaning on our own works to gain favor with God, to be, have a right standing with God. You see, the Christian gospel is we have right standing with God because solely because of the work of Christ, period. That's it. Our obedience to God is not to gain right standing with God. It's because we have been given right standing with God. That's why we obey. Another way to think about this is when you've been given the greatest gift possible, what is the only, only plausible, reasonable way to respond? And that is to become the servant to the one who gave you that gift. So that's, what, that's how we should function, how we should work, how we should obey. It's not to gain standing but because we have been given standing. If false brothers were a reality in the early church, one should expect that they will be a reality today. There are people who will seek positions of leadership and authority in a community of believers who do not know Christ. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, hypocrites. Jesus warned us to beware of them in Matthew 7, verse 15. If one cannot recognize false brothers... One will probably be deceived by them. That is a big reality. Uh, one of the things I like to do is to challenge people. Can you recognize the false churches in your community? Can you recognize the false brothers in your own church? And I've been amazed to see, no matter where I go and ask that question, today the Christians are not discerning. They cannot point out. I'm pretty convinced that that community over there is not a sound church and this brother over here in our community I see no fruit of Christ in them I almost never hear anybody be able to point out anything and this is not to judge anyone but this is to be good fruit inspectors so you know reality and God is in reality now the last uh, five verses starting with verse 6 here and for those who seem to be influential and, and what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw, now these influential people are obviously Peter, James, and John. So when Peter, James, and John saw that I had been entrusted with a gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with a gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to be to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived 
the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Three times in this chapter, Paul uses the Greek word dokio in verses 2, 6, and 9. It's translated seem to be influential to refer to those whom Paul believed were the senior leaders of the church. Paul's mission was to connect with the church leadership to validate his calling and message. The phrase, those who seemed influential, referred to Peter, James, and John, who were able to recognize the call of God on Peter primarily to the Jews and Paul primarily to the Gentiles. The word translated saw or perceived implies perception by human senses. In other words, it's a heuristic understanding. Titus was visible to all, and his presence testified to the efficacy of Paul's singular gospel, particularly to the Gentiles. In other words, Titus clearly was bearing witness that he was born again. They could look at him and see the fruit of genuineness, the genuine work of Christ in him. Therefore, Peter, James, and John acknowledged and confirmed Paul's calling and his singular gospel by extending the right hand of fellowship. This was apparently tantamount to laying hands on them, that is, ordaining Paul and Barnabas for the work they had been doing. When seeking commissioning, it's important to recognize the, the real commissioning agents. Paul went to Jerusalem and sought out the church leaders. There would always be in the Christian community those who claim a position of authority but don't really have it. This was true in Jerusalem with the false brothers. Another example of this reality was that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, of whom it was said of them that compared to Jesus, they didn't have any authority. Note the words recorded by Matthew when Jesus completed the Sermon on the Mount. It says, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew 7, 28, 29. It is therefore important to seek commissioning from those who truly carry divinely ordained authority. Therefore, one must discern to whom God has given that authority, and the best way to confirm this or to discern this is through their fruit. Remember, Jesus gave us a principle here. By their fruit, you will know them. Matthew 7, verse 16. So now a few theological considerations before we do our application. Uh, one of the things to deal with is independence. In the opening verses of the epistle to Galatians, as I mentioned in the introduction, it could appear that Paul was a very independent person, even arrogant. Note, for example, in Galatians 1.1, Paul's assertion that his calling to be an apostle was of divine origin and was given to him without human agency. Again, reading 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he's saying, like, I have direct access to him. There's no human mediation. Now, the stress that Paul places on the singularity of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, includes twice commanding that everyone who preached any other gospel was accursed. And finally, in verse 10, he claims that his singular agenda is to please God alone. So you have multiple references here in the first chapter that seem to suggest very clearly that Paul may be independent. But to conclude this would be to mis misinterpret what Paul is saying here. See, to draw this conclusion, you have to understand Paul. 
you have to understand what Paul was trying to do. Paul did have times when he was isolated, but he was always connected to the body of Christ and particularly to the leaders. For example, in his missionary journey recorded in the book of Acts, Paul always had companions. Paul was never alone and independent. Paul was close to Barnabas, who introduced him to the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians 5.19, Paul calls himself the least of the apostles because he had persecuted the church. This means that Paul did not view himself as a singular apostle, but one of many. Furthermore, he stresses on inter, his stress on interdependence in 1 Corinthians 12 demonstrated that Paul did not teach independence, but being interdependent did not mean that Paul abandoned his conviction about Christ for the sake of human relationship. His conviction about the gospel, about the nature of Christ, was very clear, and it could not be changed. Paul's clarity Great clarity was of a deep, deep conviction, and when he expressed it, it sometimes looked like independence, but that was simply a way to protect the purity and clarity of his singular gospel. Paul was grounded in Christ so that when others wavered, he was unswayed. He was so convicted that Christ was so deep in him that he never abandoned the singular gospel of the grace of Christ no matter what the opposition said. I mentioned that there are three types of revelation. I know you've heard this before, so I, I won't dwell on this, just to say a few things. Scripture reveals three types of revelation, general, special, and specific. And general revelation is revelation of God in creation. Special revelation is revelation of God in Scripture. And specific revelation is revelation of God for a, a particular person at a particular in a particular situation at a particular time. So it's very specific guidance and it's not canonical. Special revelation is canonical. It's in, within the canon of Scripture, we find the prescriptions of God on how to live. And we also find in general revelation some canonical principles. All the laws of physics, they're canonical principles. These are way of God's universe. He created those laws. And we find specific revelation. We find you know canonical principles. Now, not everything in general revelation and specific revelation is canonical. You have to learn what is canonical and what isn't. And so one of the things to do is you learn to distinguish between texts that are prescriptive versus texts that are descriptive. And Paul is here in Galatians chapter 2 giving us a lot of description as well as some prescription. And so you have to be able to make that distinction. So that's one of the keys is understanding these types of revelation and recognizing as you're reading scripture, what am I looking at? Exactly, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Another thing that Paul did here in this text was he wanted to be sure that the gospel was clarified. Uh, one of the battles that the Christian church has fought over the centuries has been for clarity of the gospel. It's not new. It continues even today. It was attacked by the Judaizers in the first century. Probably the next best uh, big attack on the gospel, not the only, but the next big one was Pelagianism. Pelagianism happened about 400 years later. It was the assertion that mankind was not totally depraved and therefore was able to choose good or evil. In his own strength, in his own potency, human beings could choose. That was fought out in church council and then articulated by the great uh, uh, theologian Augustine, and they concluded that Pelagian was wrong, that man was totally depraved in the sense that he could not choose good. He would default to evil every time. 
Anytime man looked like he was choosing good, it was only the common grace of God enabling him to do something, something very simple that lined up with God. For example, people can, pagan people, people that don't know the Lord, can choose to be nice. Well, in their own nature, they won't choose that. That is the empowering presence of Christ in them to, to choose to be nice in a particular situation. So that's an example of common grace at work, and common grace is grace available to all. Well, other, other deformities that happened, other attacks on the gospel of grace happened later on. For example, in the 16th century, you have Jacob Arminius rising up. Well, let me back up. Before him, the, the reformers in the earlier part of the 16th century fought the Roman Catholic view of salvation by grace plus the grace of the church, plus human works. In other words, their grace was threefold. Then later in that century, Arminius rose up and basically re revived uh, Pelagianism and articulated that man could choose God, that God didn't choose man. So the church has had to fight these things through the centuries, and it continued with the Great Awakening. And many of the Great Awakening evangelists chose the Arminian view versus the, the biblical view sometimes called the Calvinistic view. When you choose that Arminian view, it leads to a, a truncated gospel, and which means all the emphasis is on Christ as Savior and very little is on Lordship. He is Savior and Lord. When you focus on Savior and don't give equal value to Lordship, it leads to what some people call cheap grace. Cheap grace is people who think they can, they can accept Christ and have a ticket to heaven and that's all they need to do and they can go live the life they want to live. That is called cheap grace. Later in the 19th century, we have the social gospel rising up, which is an attempt of the pagans to try to be socially relevant because the Christians were not. And the Christians were not because, again, the cheap grace was rising up within the Christian community. The 20th century brought, you know, even more, and that is the rise of the, the social gospel continued to rise and eventually it led to the prosperity gospel and the prosperity gospel is just humanistic gospel it's a man-centered gospel so you can see this battle for the class gospel clarity has gone on since the beginning of the church it continues in various forms it continues today and paul was very settled and very clear on the gospel of the grace of christ we need to get very settled and very clear on the Pauline gospel. Well, let me just do some application here real quickly. If the rights-oriented entitlement cultures of the world today, particularly in the U.S., there is a presumption among these cultures of independence expressed by phrases such as, no one tells me what to do. Some would claim to follow the example of Paul, who seemed to be very independent in Galatians 1, but as I mentioned before, to interpret this text as a prescriptive, as prescriptive for independence is inconsistent with even Galatians chapter 2, in which Paul demonstrated submission and interdependence with other church leaders. Christianity is intended to be a community experience. Life flows from the community experience. Failure to engage in the community experience will lead to an unfruitful life. Paul taught and practiced the importance of living in community, but also he had the challenge of protecting the clarity of, and purity of the gospel from those who were confused. So a better way to understand Galatians 1 is that Paul's actions were descriptive of his efforts to protect the singular gospel from those who would distort it. 
Don't take Paul's words as being prescriptive and in some way endorsing a lifestyle of independence. That, I think, would be a great disservice and a great misunderstanding to Paul's revelation in other places. The Apostle Paul was deeply convicted of the veracity of the singular gospel. A deep conviction is a gift of God that comes by revelation. However, notwithstanding one's deep conviction, it is wise and humble to seek confirmation. And one of the wisest acts of humility is to submit to those in authority over us who can provide confirmation. God delegates human authority, and delegated authority is tasked with the responsibility of facilitating alignment with God. See Romans 13. This is true even of dysfunctional authority. But one should submit a, a deep conviction to, to, but should one submit a deep conviction to dysfunctional authority? The Apostle Paul modeled how to do that. See, Christ was revealed to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Through the singular revelation of Christ, Paul was given the singular gospel of grace through Christ. Paul's understanding of the gospel quickly developed and seemed to be clearer than the original apostles' understanding. Paul was convicted of this reality and stood firm for the purity and clarity of the gospel, though others opposed him. Nevertheless, he was humble enough to realize that he could be mistaken. You always hold on to your convictions with a little, a little looseness. And you want confirmation. Paul sought confirmation from the very men whom he felt lacked clarity on the issue, but he knew they had authority and had authority over him. Therefore, he sought confirmation from the very men whom he felt lacked clarity on the issue, and he knew that, he, that God could work through authority, even dysfunctional authority, and he knew God's sovereignty is stronger than man's dysfunctionality. Consequently, the proper process for Paul was to seek confirmation and or correction from those in authority over him in the church. Even though Paul seemed very confident of his conviction, he demonstrated humility, submission, and teachability by seeking counsel from those in authority over him in the church. So it should be with us. We should seek confirmation of our convictions from our commissioning agents. We should always live with an attitude of humility, submission, and teachability toward delegated authority in our lives. This is a key to wise living. As an example, consider the function of strategic planning in the workplace. According to James 4, verses 13 through 17, strategic planning is a process of discerning the will of God. Discerning the will of God requires people whose minds are progressively transformed so that they will be progressively learning to, to think like God. See Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Transformation is the process of maturing in Christ. Managers must progressively mature in Christ to be able to discern the will of God. The validation that one is maturing in Christ is one's increasing ability to live according to a Christian worldview. Managers with a Christian worldview will progressively display Christ-like character in everything they do and will be the clearest strategic thinkers and consequently the best organizational leaders because they can discern and align with the will of God. And one of the key traits of wise godly managers and leaders is that they will seek confirmation of their strategic plans from commissioning agents. They live under authority, no matter how clear they think they are, how convicted they are of a plan or a strategy, they will always seek confirmation. Workers should follow the lead of those in authority over them. 
They must develop their skill and ability under the tutelage of wise, godly leaders and managers who can commission them to their divinely ordained work assignments. One enemy of this process is the presumption of self-commissioning, which is an expression of independence. When we act independently, we are not humble, we are not submitted, we are not teachable, and are therefore very likely to err in our decisions. Furthermore, independence leads to self-commissioning and is a, as, as a manifestation of pride that leads to failure as illustrated by King David's son Adonijah in 1 Kings verses 1 and 2. Proper commissioning implicitly requires the confirmation of authority figures who can see the call of God on us and direct us into alignment with that call. May God give us grace to learn to live under proper authority, God's authority, and to value the commissioning of those who he's called to be over us in Jesus' name.